were you close at all to, to committing to his program? Was there ever a part of you that back in the day, and I know you committed to Mizzou before the start of your senior year, but there, was there ever that instance where you kind of thought about how that would have played out if you had committed to him, you know, back when he was at NC State? I always tell him the reason that I wasn't um, so high on NC State was because I knew that he was going to get a head coaching job. So I knew because of his success that he was going to he was going to be gone in a couple of years or the year after or the year I got there, um, which would have just been another new coach that I didn't I didn't know. Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Downstop podcast. I am Connor O'Gara. Will, you are back. You were missed last week. How are we doing? Doing great, man. Doing better than ever. Took a little, you know, personal slash mental health week, but we're firing on all cylinders here today. And uh, yeah, just fired up by some college football, man. It's a great day. Love it. Beautiful. Positive vibes only. We've got two excellent interviews today. I've got one with Mizzou quarterback Connor Bazelak. I've written a little bit about why I think he's quietly the SEC quarterback that nobody's really talking about. And as you can tell from the interview, he's pretty reserved, Midwest guy. You know, I, uh, I I think Will, you you have your different interpretations of what a Midwest guy is when I say that. And I think a lot of people listening to this, maybe you listen to me and you think, oh, you know, a Midwest person is one specific way. But I just mean that he's a little bit more kind of quieter, and he is very he comes off very humble, I think as well, and not necessarily boisterous, outspoken type of guy. But I think that he has some great perspective, and I enjoyed talking to him ahead of his year two as a starter in this system. Yeah, just a quick PSA. Connor said off air, if you're going to slander someone from the Midwest, the don't you know, the Minnesota one, that's not true. But the it's Chicago not. super fans, that yes. one's fair game. So if ever you see Connor on the street, just look at him and give him a quick, the bears. I'm wearing a bear shirt today, so <laughs> it works. And every single time you bring that up, or I think about that imitation. I think about what Josh Snead did with SEC shorts a few years ago. And, and I love Josh. Don't get it twisted. Josh is awesome. And the video mm-hmm. that he put out this past week about the playoff wanting to see other people was so, so good. They do tremendous work over there. But the one criticism I'll make of Josh is his Midwest imitation that he did a few years back. It's just not right. It's just not right. <laughs> uh, I have a lot of different thoughts on that that I'll save for off the air, but Josh does a lot of things very, very well. That's just the one thing that he doesn't do well. So we've got the Connor Bazelak interview, and I also wanted to bring on an expert who understands some of the legality of the name, image, and likeness stuff that will be starting up officially by the time that people are listening to this podcast. In full disclosure, that interview was before the NCAA came out and announced that players in states without NIL legislation in place will actually be able to make money that way. That's why you saw a bunch of those players in those states, including Connor Bazelak, posting on social media that they love to talk with local businesses and brands about endorsement opportunities as soon as basically this becomes official. So I just wanted to kind of clean that up a bit. I did 10 questions with Scott. So if you're still trying to figure out some of this yourself, he's going to provide some much needed context so that we can all get on the same page with this. Will, putting you on the spot here, who is the college athlete that would have benefited the most from the new name image likeness era? Man, 
It's got to be either the Boz or like the Fab Five, right? I mean, the Boz, whatever, right? Like those guys could have at least sold T-shirts. I mean, when you think about guys who are iconic inside of college, and then obviously some of the guys with the Fab Five, like they went on to do other things. But the Boz, I mean, his earning potential was during his college years, and so yeah, yeah, I think that that would have been one of those things. And you see plenty of apparel companies capitalizing on slogans and things like that now. I think that he could have made a pretty penny back in the day. I love the 30 for 30 on him, too. And we had, I had Bosnia on the pause a couple years ago. He was doing one of those pre-national championship media tour type of deals. And I, I really enjoyed getting to talk with him and seeing his perspective on this whole deal like 30 years later was, was fascinating because I didn't grow up watching him. But you're 100% right. Zion is, is the obvious one in college basketball in terms of individuals. But the Fab Five mention is spot on because those guys – the way that they came back as sophomores was when they started to develop that shaded sense, as they should have, because so many different people were profiting. And they even did the black t-shirt thing mm-hmm. at one point, instead of wearing the warm-up jerseys and stuff like that. So those are those are really, really good. Tebow is an obvious one. I remember talking to the owner of uh, The Swamp, rest in peace, and talking about if he would have had Tebow on as a spokesperson, if something like that were legal back when, when Tebow was in school. He said, in a heartbeat, absolutely. Probably some of those Kentucky guys as well, just because of what basketball means in that state, obviously. And that's another, I've talked to Matt Jones, Kentucky Sports Radio, about that, who now owns a local restaurant there as well. And I would tend to think that a John Wall or somebody like that, these guys that come in as such decorated recruits at Kentucky would definitely be able to profit off of that. Man, Man John Wall up just the dance, man. Oh, yeah, all day. I mean, he could do that in any commercial. He could sell any product in the state of Kentucky. I I have no doubts whatsoever about that. I think that you could look at, let's see, besides besides Manziel, who apparently, as we found out, did a recent podcast, Bustin' with the Boys, in which he talked about making $30,000 signing autographs and stuff. So that's, Manziel is, is one that comes to mind. Todd Gurley, 2014 Todd Gurley, the year that was stolen from him mm-hmm. because he signed autographs, even though everybody else benefited off his name, image, and likeness. That's the one that I kind of just feel bad looking back on that that kid could have made some serious money and if you know the way that he grew up and all those different things it just it didn't sit right that he was suspended the way that he was for multiple games for doing something that now would be perfectly legal but yep. those are those are the ones that come off I'm sure I mean we're missing a ton you know even like a a guy like JJ Redick of course and some of these some of these guys who who stay for multiple years at their specific schools. But now I think it's different. And we apparently, we were hearing reports that even a Brock Vandegrift, five-star Georgia quarterback, early enrollee, had something lined up. That's the difference between college football now as opposed to 20 years ago. Peyton Manning would have obviously sold everything possible at Tennessee in the same way that he is now. There's, there's a million of these guys who would have benefited. Maybe that's like the top 10 that we just named. I like that question though, Will. That was, that's a very good question that you, you posed before we, we got on here that I think a lot of people have been thinking about. A lot to get to today. And at the end, we're also going to do flying and figuring it out because I had my worst travel experience ever in Ooh. California. <laughs> yeah. So we'll get to all that later. 
Today's podcast is brought to you by the Saturday Football Newsletter. Listen, you've heard me say it a million times over and over again. If you are not still subscribed, or if you have not subscribed yet, rather, to the Saturday Football Newsletter, what are you doing? Take one minute, one, two minutes max, to go to saturday.football and put in your email address and sign up for the Saturday newsletter and I promise the Saturday football newsletter and I promise you're going to be happy that you did because it's going to give you all of those headlines that you need. There are a lot of moving pieces now with NIL laws going into effect and you're going to want to be on top of that. And if you don't want to sift through social media or maybe you're getting off social media because all of these players are now going to be promoting stuff through their social media channels and you just want to be able to get the news that you need sent to your inbox, the Saturday Football Newsletter is so excellent for that. It's only two times a week during this time of year. It ramps up, of course, when we get into mid-season mode, starting around like in August, I think the plans are for that, or past media days. But it is such a great, great resource, and I cannot recommend it enough. So if you have not yet, Saturday.Football, put in your email address, and I promise you'll be a smarter college football fan. Let's kick it to NIL expert Scott Cole and then Mizzou quarterback Connor Bazelak. All right, wanted to do something a little different today. Uh, by the time that people are listening to this, the new name, image, and likeness laws will be in effect. There are a ton of moving pieces here and, and a lot of stuff that still needs to be figured out, such as when and what will the universal rules be instead of just the rules in select states and, and how all that's going to work. So now I'm joined by Gray Robinson, higher education attorney Scott Cole, who worked on the general counsel at UCF for 18 years and recently put together what's essentially a rundown of what schools should be doing to prepare for this new era wherein college athletes can profit off their individual platforms. Scott, this isn't one of the 10 questions here, but has your brain ever hurt uh, maybe past few months just trying to figure out some of this stuff? Because if it has, you're, you're like the rest of us. Well, it definitely has been hurting. It's uh, really a unprecedented time for college athletics. I think we all knew that these type of changes were coming, but I don't think uh, we thought it would come so quickly and in such a short period of time. It's like that last uh, domino, you know, fell and now everyone is scrambling to figure out what to do here. So I expect it's going to be ugly for a little while, but, um, but you know, change is good, right? Change is good, as I always say on this, adapt or die. And I think that there are a lot right. of people wondering just what adapting is going to look like. So let's, let's start basic here for the first question. I saw Graham Mertz, the Wisconsin quarterback, he had a video out there with his own personal brand logo. And you know, you see this in college sports all the time, but he was the first college player to do that. And you know, a lot of these college athletes, I'm imagining by the time that people are listening to this, are gonna have those self-promotional type videos out there already. Is that maybe the biggest overnight change that we're gonna see in the early stages of this? Or is there something else that you expect by week's end we're all gonna be looking at? Well, that's obviously a huge thing that's been happening. And, you know, these firms uh, are popping up everywhere, um, reaching out to student athletes to try to uh, be uh, on the bleeding edge of this new way for them to make money. Um, and some of that, I think, will go really well, and some of it might get a little ugly. You know, um, obviously it will help when we, when we have, and hopefully we'll have, 
a nationwide standard on this, but until then, um, you know, I'm in Florida. Florida actually is one of the six states that on July 1 will implement their statute on NIL. And it's, you know, there's, there'll be some regulations of these firms. Uh, the people who represent student athletes will either have to be an attorney licensed in Florida or will have to be registered as an athlete agent in Florida. And I think that's a good thing because, you know, we're dealing with, um, you know, young men and young women who are 18 years old, uh, maybe a little bit older, but um, who may not be very sophisticated in these matters. And I, I am concerned about some of them being taken advantage of. Number two here, you wrote about how in Florida there's no defined cap on fair market value. Derek Stingley, the star cornerback at LSU, has 135,000 followers on Instagram. JT Daniels, star Georgia quarterback, something like 62,000 followers on Instagram. How do we define fair market value or how do we put a ceiling on that when certain guys like that are wild, they're wildly more popular and they have more national pull than the backup left guard at Vanderbilt. Yeah, so I don't know that we know the answer to that. I mean, if somebody rightly said fair market value is basically what you can get for it in the market. So um, I, you, you, I think what will happen is uh, the big stars will have agents who will ask for a lot and we'll see what these companies are willing to pay. And it will, uh, I think, become uh, uh, clear fairly quickly what the market for these will be. Um, and, uh, you know, supply and demand, right? Uh, there's a lot of demand for these student athletes and having them promote the products and that price will keep going up. Okay, so number three here, and I'm glad you brought up that word agents because usually you hear that in the past and you think about athletes who have those wink, wink, nudge, nudge deals with agents, but it's going to be perceived differently in this era. At least it sounds like it. I, I just, I wanna be clear, how do they factor into this whole thing? Because I know now it's like, there are certain ways in which it's illegal and certain ways that it's not. It just doesn't seem like there would be an outside party who's not approved by the university. But also at the same time then, what's stopping a university from having a few agents just on retainer to work for them. They could even be former law school grads. So I guess that's like three questions wrapped into one, but how does the agents piece of this break down? Well, so I think universities are going to struggle in how involved they want to be in these deals between a student athlete and an agent. They'll be interested in making sure that the uh, student athlete isn't taken advantage of. They'll want to make sure that the student athlete is not um, uh, promoting a product that is inconsistent with um, companies that are already doing business with the athletics program. Um, they'll um, want to make sure that the agent doesn't drift beyond the specifics of selling their name, image, likeness, and start getting into prohibited areas. And I think the universities will be very interested to make sure that any one that the student athlete deals with is not an insider within the athletics program because that's still prohibited, right? Boosters aren't allowed to, to hire these student athletes because that could be subject to abuse. So, uh, it, you know, on the other hand, you know, the universities don't want to get in the middle of, of this business relationship. So I don't think they really know yet what role they're going to play. I think they're going to start to feel their way along in the next few weeks and see what works for each institution. That, that sentence, I feel like, can be applied to a few different things. Maybe this situation as well. So question number four, 
under the current rules, tell me if this is legal. Saturday Down South, it's it's a Florida-based company, so this is probably right in your wheelhouse for at least having an understanding of this. Could we as a company theoretically hit up Florida quarterback Emory Jones and say, hey, we'll pay you 10 grand to do a sponsored post on all of your social media accounts saying, I get all my SEC news from SaturdayDownSouth.com. What factors could theoretically stand in the way of something like that happening? Well, uh, yes, uh, you, you could do that. And um, as long as um, he's not using the University of Florida trademarks or representing that he's acting on behalf of the institution, I think that uh, works fine. And as long as there's no competing business relationship between the University of Florida and someone that uh, – uh, you know, has a competing product, then I think all of that would be perfectly fine. Sweet. Sounds like I got to tell my bosses we, we'll get Emory Jones, Emory Jones on the horn yeah. and uh, we'll be good to go. Well, um, I'm a, I'm yeah, a Gator Florida grad, might not so we want to keep him happy. <laughs> there we go. I like that. I like that. It, it sounds like universities, they're going to have the final say on all of these potential ad deals for players and these things are still going to have to work through compliance in a very strenuous sort of way. If I'm a university, I'm treating this like I'm running a political campaign with accepting funds. Though I realize, like you said, you, it's not like you can use the university's likeness for the individual's benefit. But if an Alabama quarterback does a post on Instagram saying, I bought my bulldog from local pet store X, and then you know it's signed off by the university, it's all good, and then the next day we find out that the pet store drowns puppies, that's still a super messy situation for the university to have to navigate that they wouldn't have had to deal with before. How do you think that whole deal is going to be sorted through from the eyes of the university? Well, I think that's a very good point. Uh, sometimes it's very uh, difficult to uh, separate the athlete from the institution, and those situations will arise. Um, I think that you know one of the things the university will try to do and this is not a complete solution, but they'll want to see these potential arrangements before they're signed off by the student athlete or, or his or her agent to, you know, sort of give it the sniff test and make sure there's, there's nothing really uh, potentially bad either in terms of reputation for the university or, you know, maybe they're a fly-by-night company and the student athlete will never be paid, that kind of thing. So there'll definitely be some compliance aspect to this and trying to protect the student athlete. But, you know, that kind of thing will definitely happen. And that's where the university PR people will come in and do their job and try to uh, keep it from being too bad. Yeah, the, the amount of uh, potential canceling and stuff like that and all, uh, what, what you're associated with, I think that's going to be taken to a, a different level with this sort of thing, at least it seems like. So number six, the Supreme Court ruling that basically said, hey, the NCAA business model is totally illegal and it violates these antitrust laws. You are not above the law. It feels like a name, image, and likeness deal, but also kind of not. Are those two separate issues or do you think that there's significant overlap with that? So there are two separate issues. What the Supreme Court did was they said that the NCAA could not put a limit on education-related compensation to athletes, so scholarships and, uh, you know, cost of living and, and computers and, and that type of stuff. They did not strike down the current limitations on things 
like NIL, um, which are really, um, you know, cash-type payments or payments for their status as an athlete. So what the NCA is doing, though, recognizing they're really caught in a bad situation with these states passing these laws saying it's okay, is probably today they're going to waive that rule uh, to allow the athletes to start doing these deals. Um, but that's a temporary solution, and it's not clear what the long-term solution is going to be, whether there will be a federal law that will govern this or whether the NCA will just expand what athletes can do or whether the courts will decide that, you know, the NCAA can't uh, prohibit uh, students from licensing their NIL. But, um, but no, that the, the court decision actually didn't address NIL, but the NCAA is going to do so on its own. Right, right. That, that led right into my next question, number seven here. Is the NCAA to blame for not having universal rules figured out by now? And you could just say yes and bash the NCAA. Nobody's really going to take any, any, any sort of issue with that. Yeah. Well, my sense uh, of, of being a general counsel at a university for a very long time is that the NCA, for the most part, really believes in the amateur model. Uh, so I, I think they were trying to do the best they could uh, to preserve it. The problem was at the same time, you know, that was happening, the athletic programs were bringing in, you know, 100, close to $200 million in some cases in revenues. Coaches are making $7, $10 million a year, and it's become this huge business. And so I think there's maybe been a failure by the NCAA to really come to grips with they are regulating huge businesses. And they really have to start uh, rethinking the whole amateurism model. And, and is that fair to allow coaches and universities to make all this money and for student athletes not to participate in it? Number eight here. I think a lot of fans are worried that this is going to impact the product that they see on the field on Saturdays. That's, that's what this all comes down to. It'll make it more about personal brand promotion instead of playing for the name on the helmet. And in a way, it'll frustrate people that the sport feels more professional in that aspect. How, how do you react to someone saying that this whole deal and this change in dynamic is going to ruin the sport? Well, I certainly understand that point of view. That, that's interesting because that is one of the arguments that the NCAA made in the uh, Alston case was that what was great about having, you know, amateur college athletics is that it created a second option for sports fans, right? You had the pro model and then you had the amateur model and, and people liked that. And we are going to now see a blurring of that line between professional and, and uh, amateur sports. Some people don't seem to be concerned about that at all. I know other people, especially, you know, alumni at universities who have a real connection to their institution may feel a little put off if they start seeing logos on uniforms and, you know, that kind of stuff. So uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, the numbers will speak for themselves. If attendance isn't affected, uh, then fine, it'll be, you know, it'll be okay. But uh, we could see some people choose to just go ahead and go with professional sports since there really isn't a whole lot of difference. Number nine, let's say I'm Dylan Gabriel, UCF quarterback. I'm a national name, hoping to set myself up well to be able to profit off my name, image, and likeness. What legal advice, uh, you know, uh, not necessarily like straight to Dylan Gabriel, because he's not necessarily the one asking this, but just me, hypothetical D Dylan Gabriel, 
what legal advice would you give me? Should I start doing sponsored Instagram posts every day? Should I hit up local sporting goods stores, spend my July Saturday signing autographs, go to malls? Should I get on Cameo? Like, I think there are a lot of kids, and based on what I've seen on social media so far, that are just kind of wondering, where, where should I be going? How should I be approaching this? And nobody really has a, a, a defined answer. How would you advise someone, hypothetically, who's in that spot to, to make some money and just trying to figure that out from an athlete standpoint? Yeah, I would strongly advise that they rely on the professionals that do this type of thing. Um, you know, he needs to be focusing on throwing the football, which he, by the way, is very, very good at. Um, but True. he can't, you know, he, he cannot gain that type of knowledge with his, you know, busy schedule and his life experiences. So, you know, two good things. One is I know in Florida, they require that the university in the beginning of the first and third year, uh, that all student athletes get, uh, education about what to look for in representation and deals and all that type of stuff. So that's a really good thing. And then second of all, you've got to find the right person who you know will be looking out for you. It's not just about making money for themselves. And if they, if the student athlete can, you know, rely on their parents or, or, or other supporters to find that right person, it will save them a lot of grief in the long run. In the long run. I'll get you out of here on this one. If our listeners take away one thing from this conversation and this new era of with athletes just in different spots at the college level uh, and, and just kind of give them one piece of information that they should maybe feel good about or maybe not feel so good about and feel like we're still going to figure a lot of things out. What do you think that one takeaway should be? Well, I think a good aspect of all of this is that the players will be able to receive some level of compensation for all the hard work that they put in at the universities. My concern is that uh, some of them um, will not be treated fairly in the process. And it will be, I think, up to the universities who, you know, for the most part really care about these, these athletes to make sure that they are on top of these type of uh, arrangements, that they provide education to the student athletes, that they support them so that uh, whatever they end up doing, it's something that's legitimate um, and is something that both the athlete and the university can be proud of. Scott, this has been great, man. Uh, really, really appreciate the insight. Where can our listeners find your expertise if they want to get some more clarity on these NIL issues? Yeah, you can uh, hit up our website at www.grayrobinson.com, and uh, we have a higher education section, and they can certainly reach out to me if they have any questions about anything. Awesome, awesome. Thanks again, Scott. Best of luck on navigating this uh, this whole new world we're about to walk into. All right, thanks a lot. Enjoyed it. Take care. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Mizzou quarterback and SEC freshman of the year, Connor Bazelak. Connor, I, I gotta say, as a fellow Connor, I'm pretty sure you're the first guest I've had on who shares my name, but perhaps of equal importance, you spell Connor the correct way. As I always tell people, two N's and an O. Do you also, like I do, get irrationally annoyed when people assume your first name is spelled C-O-N-N-E-R? Oh yeah, it's it's uh, it's happened a lot, and in my whole life, it's been it's either E-R with one N. And actually, I was at a restaurant the other day, and they asked for my name, and the guy spelled it with a K to start. What? So. 
I mean, I guess it's it's spelled any way you want, but C O N N O R is is it's the correct way. Did he spell it K O N N O R? Yep. Yep. Oh, I hate that. Uh, That's the worst. I know. It looked awful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll correct anybody who spells your name E R because as a as a fellow two N's and an O guy, I can't I can't let you take the beating for that. Technically, (laughs) here you're so. Let me get this straight. You're entering your third year, but because you redshirted in 2019 and last year didn't count against anyone, does that mean in terms of eligibility that you're still a freshman? Correct. In in terms of eligibility, I would still technically be a redshirt freshman. Um, But I'm going into my junior year of school. Wow, that's a that's a weird thought. I, I think you need to play that to your advantage. Like you you walk around being yeah. like, Yeah, I'm only a freshman or if people are talking about you, you know, analysts and stuff like that, you'd be like, Yeah, this kid's only a freshman and he's still like he, he mm-hmm. looks this good already. Yep, no doubt. <laughs> so uh using normal letter grades, what grade would you give your individual performance in twenty twenty? In twenty twenty um, I think it was around a B. I think obviously there were some games where, um, the team and myself, we played well and, uh, we got wins, but, um, also there were games where I didn't do my job and, um, I got to be better. So I think there is some inconsistency, inconsistency, inconsistency inconsistencies <laughs> there you, um, go. you got it inconsistencies uh but i mean I, th- I think i would grade myself based on how how well the team does and um i think when i was when i was starting we were uh five and three so i mean it's not up to my standards but you know, five and three is it's it's a step in the right direction, and um, so yeah, I would say about a B. I know at this level there are no excuses, but I do feel like maybe if there were teams who deserved to be at least graded on a curve, it was the teams who had new coaches like you guys did, because obviously you know it's one thing to have to learn a new system. It's another when you have to do so when spring ball is essentially wiped out and like, you know, COVID throws basically the entire offseason calendar out of whack. Oh, by the way, you also were still rehabbing your knee last offseason. How different has this offseason been for you compared to last year? Um, it's been a lot different um, for me and the team as well. I mean, last year for me, I was just focused on um, – you know, I was competing in, in many different aspects. I was competing with two other quarterbacks for the starting job. And I, I, I like to say I was competing with my knee as well to, to get that back healthy and 100% for the summer. Um, so there was a lot of different things that, you know, I was, I was working towards. Um, and now this summer, it's like I can, I can focus on my guys and my leadership and developing, you know, the little things and the details that I, that I saw from last year in the film after watching. And I can really just um, hone in on those things and, and go, go to work. 
I remember last year I was talking to Matt Corral about getting Lane Kiffin's offense down, and he said he was so frustrated because third system in his many years, and he had to start coming in for these 5.30 a.m. film sessions just to be able to get down the basics of it, and it really helped. How hard was it to get Coach Drinkowitz's his system down? Were you having to, to really kind of go to a different level than that you like never really had to go at as a football player, or was it one of those things where it kind of clicked a little bit earlier on for you? Um, I think it, it was difficult um, at the start because, you know, with all the COVID stuff, we were we were home and we weren't meeting like in person, so there'd be Zoom meetings trying to learn a whole new offense, um, which was difficult because you know I like to you know be face to face like have coach drawing on a whiteboard and um, things right in front of me, but you know I think once once fall camp started and we were all here and we were meeting two two times a day, I think I really started to pick it up and. Um, I think Coach Drink did a great job of getting me reps in practice, just getting me a bunch of reps, um, just so just so I would start to really develop in the offense and, and understand it. Take me back to LSU. It's your first start in this new system. I'm sure that prep was super unique because you're probably doing the thing where you over-prepare and you're like, man, you know, defending champs, they're coming to town. And I know there was the midweek switch with the location of the game where it was supposed to be at LSU and then the weather pushed it to be able to be played in Columbia. And you're like, ah, I've got to face Derek Stingley. And then you get out there and not to take anything away from your performance or the scheme, the, the prep that went into that game, but you were thrown to a bunch of wide open guys that day. The, the flea flicker mm -hmm. for your first career touchdown pass. And I know that was a little bit of a smaller window that you had to make that throw into. But but tell me the backstory on that. Did you guys have that ready to roll all week? And was it something you saw on film with LSU? Yeah, that was that was one of our um, kind of scripted opening plays. And, you know, we, we see that stuff in the film that where there's an opportunity for, for a shot play and um, – I think Coach Drink did a great job of, of calling aggressive plays that game, and you know we weren't holding back from from the defending champs. So, I mean, we were we were we were gonna. We will, I think one of our main goals that that week was take the lead early. So I think I think we did that, and it uh, set us up for success. That that calmed me down probably so much to be able to get that one out of the way because. I imagine, you know, the nerves, the adrenaline and all those things had to be just at a different level coming into that game. And then you get a play like that under your belt and it, it looks like it really helped you settle in. Did you kind of feel that sense of calm when you were able to get that first one under your belt? Yeah, I think so. I think um, even having the whole three quarters, um, the game before against Tennessee, um, I think that really gave me confidence and calmed me down. And then I was able to just kind of carry that over to the next week against LSU. And I think just once I get the first, the first play, the first pass um, of the game out of the way, then I'm, I'm ready to roll and set for the game. Do you, do you overthrow a guy when you come into a game? Do you feel like you, you do that sometimes? Or are you one of those guys that you really don't have to worry about that adrenaline and calming yourself down? You, that's not never really something that you've experienced. No, I don't think I've 
ever experienced that. I don't I don't think I get, you know, a bunch of adrenaline and get super amped over a game and um I like kinda of just to stay level headed and I think I think that's good for to have as a quarterback for for the team so they can see the leader and quarterback kind of staying poised and, and calm. You did two things as a first-time starter that I thought were really, really encouraging. You escaped pressure really well, and you talk about having that poise and staying calm, and you were accurate, and not just with the, the high percentage throws, but you seem to be at your best with those throws 10 to 19 yards. When, when I had Coach Drink on a few months ago, he said the thing that is really going to take this offense to the next level is being able to stretch the field better. How much has he really kind of hammered that point home this off season? Yeah, it's been a, it's been big for us uh, in the spring and uh, during spring ball. I mean, we we really focused on stretching the field vertically, and you know we got uh, a new transfer from Ohio State, Mookie. He's got some speed, um, which which will be good. He'll be able to get separation, and uh, we'll be able to take some shots down the field. But I think I've been working on you know, my deep ball accuracy and uh, footwork just just to time up with those deep throws. Tell me about Mookie because uh, we've been seeing the rave reviews about him and I, I've been one of those guys who's kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit in wait and see mode just because we just don't really see undergraduate receiver transfers come into the SEC and really take the league by storm. So I guess that's kind of my way of saying, tell me why I'm wrong and why this kid's going to be the real deal from the jump. Yeah, I think um, the first thing starts with is just his his mentality and mindset. Um, I mean, he's he's comes in to, comes in every day uh, to workouts and and he doesn't complain about anything. He just uh, puts his head down and goes to work. Um, and then also, I mean, he's he can create separation like anyone I've ever seen. So that I've played with. So I mean, as long as he can uh, stay healthy and keep a, keep a level head, I think I think he'll be will be great for this offense. Kiki Chisholm's a guy that I don't think enough people really in the SEC know about enough. But he's he's got the basketball mm-hmm. background, and you guys developed a really nice connection down the stretch last year. What, what do people need to know about him and how big of a factor do you think he's going to be in this offense this year? Yeah, I think people, I think people really need to uh, take notice of him. I think he's going to have a, have a, have a huge year. Um, you know, he's, he's very hungry for, for success. So he's going to, he's not going to stop until he gets there. And, you know, he's six five, six six, and can, can run pretty well, can catch. So, um, will be great for us and I'm excited. What were what were your first impressions of uh, of coach Drink because I think there were a lot of people myself included who really didn't know what to make of him as this guy who, you know, everybody saw he had the big year at Appalachian State and but he had such a unique background with his rise from the high school ranks and he's this guy who never played college football either and he just doesn't look kind of the same way that others do. He'll be the first to admit that. Take me back to when you first found out that he was going to be your new coach. Yeah, I think there were um, some mixed feelings. Obviously, um, I I knew Coach Drink when he recruited me when he was the OC at NC State, so I knew him prior to him 
um, coming to Mizzou. But, you know, when they hired him, obviously there was some, some nerves in there because it's a whole new coaching staff. You don't know uh, what that what that's going to bring. Um, but I think it there was a sense of security, I think, for me just because I knew him already and he knew me. So I was able to kind of build on that relationship from day one where I think others kind of had to um, – were a little bit behind in that relationship building aspect. So, I mean, was, there, there were nerves, but I, I was uh, I was excited. For, for him, I imagine it was got to be like he kind of got a second chance to be able to, to coach you in a way. And I, I realized that his, his path went in a, a different direction after NC State when he gets that head coaching gig. But – were you close at all to, to committing to his program? Was there ever a, a part of you that back in the day, and I know you committed to Mizzou before the start of your senior year, but there, was there ever that instance where you kind of thought about how that would have played out if you had committed to him, you know, back when he was at NC State? Yeah, I, I always tell him, um, you know, because NC State was doing well at the time, I always tell him the reason that I wasn't um, – so high on NC State was because I knew that he was going to get a head coaching job. So I knew because of his success that he was going to he was going to be gone in a couple years or the year after or the year I got there, um, which would have just been another new coach that I didn't I didn't know. So that's what I always tell him. And um, <laughs> yeah, the the irony, of course, being that you know you, you get to Mizzou and then you do have to deal with the yep. the new coach, but at the same time. <laughs> Trying to trying to replace Drew Locke is something that I think Mizzou fans had a lot of questions about, you know. And you had the year with Kelly Bryant, and I, I had him on the pod a few months ago, and he spoke so highly of his experience at Mizzou and some of the stuff that he learned. But what did you really take away from that first year and kind of seeing the the beginning of the post Drew Locke era? Did it kind of shape the quarterback that that you become now or how how exactly did that kind of impact you seeing the way that people talked about the Mizzou offense after he left? Yeah, I think um, just learning from Kelly, first of all, I mean, he was a great leader. I think he really taught me a lot about, you know, how to get guys on on your good side and um, how to really be the leader of the team. Um, So, I mean, my first year was – was a good learning experience. I was able to learn a whole college offense, which I wasn't used to with running the wishbone and triple option in high school. So I was able to slowly develop and learn a college system um, behind some some good guys. And then I was also just able to develop relationships and with with my teammates, and those car- have, have carried on to today. You're from Ohio. Did you grow up an Ohio State fan? I did not. I grew up a Michigan fan. Um, oh. All my, yeah, so all my friends, like everybody around me, um, hour away from Columbus, they were all Ohio State fans. I didn't want to be, like, just a follower, and I wanted to be different, so I uh, picked Michigan because that's who Ohio State hated, so, yeah. Would you go to Ohio State games and wear Michigan stuff? No, I never went to one Ohio State game. <laughs> so you you at least then were you were that kid at school who would show up then with like a Michigan T-shirt and and you you no get doubt. it from your buddies then, right? No doubt, no doubt. 
So, you know, I, I know that there are, there are some kids in, and when you're in a state of a big time program, there are some kids who will do the thing where they won't commit until the last minute in hopes that the big school in state, like in Ohio State, would come and swoop in and give them kind of that last minute offer. But you didn't do that. You committed to Mizzou and, and really didn't waver at, at that point at all. I, I imagine that you weren't in that spot as one of those kids trying to like hold out hope that Ohio State was going to come in and give you an offer, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ohio State was – they were after me late. Um, I mean, it was the situation you were just explaining. I mean, they were after me late. They wanted me to come to camps. Um, I think the month or months after I wanted to commit and I, I, I wasn't going to wait around for them. I, I didn't really care enough, uh, for them. I don't think I fitted, fitted their offense as well. So I think Mizzou was, was the right choice. I respect that. Uh, Grant Morgan told me this story about when Arkansas faced Tennessee last year. He had two instances where he called out exactly what Jared Garantano was about to do. And I thought it was fascinating to hear that from a middle linebacker's perspective. Was there a guy in the SEC or maybe a specific group of linebackers who like, you would get into some good battles with at the line of scrimmage with some of the calls? Um... Hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, those Arkansas linebackers were, were really good. Uh, they, you can tell they, they uh, studied film and knew what they were doing. So I would say, yeah, the Arkansas linebackers for sure. And Nick Bolton, I imagine, in practice. I mean, he, he I'm sure yeah. he was really good at that. Yeah, he, he was a very instinctual and smart player. And, you know, I'm – I'm going to miss him, but I'm not going to miss him in practice. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get you out of here with some, uh, some rapid-fire questions. can be either the first thing that comes to mind or if you've got a 10-minute story, whatever, whatever comes to mind for you uh, that works too. Is, does that sound good? Yeah. Perfect, perfect. First one, how have you dealt with the Chick-fil-A sauce shortage? I think Chick-fil-A is overrated. Oh, man. Oh, you really are the antagonist then. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's okay. I'll, I'll go there and eat, but I'm not craving Chick-fil-A bunch. Oh, gosh. All right. We, we won't spend any more time on that. Um, <laughs> a 12-team playoff is A, too many teams, B, not enough teams, or C, just right. I think, I think it's just right. I think it's. I think it'll be, it'll be good for for teams that, you know, can't make the four team playoff and want a shot. So. Favorite route to throw to. Uh, ten to twelve yard outbreaking and out route. Yeah. See, that's exactly um, as I'm saying. Ten to nineteen yards. That's that's the sweet spot right yep. there for you. I like that. Um, last year, in addition to facing Derek Stingley, I was looking at the corners you faced, and I'm like, oh my god, this that's not even fair. Patrick Sertan, Eric Stokes, J.C. Horn, Tyson Campbell, Eli Ricks, Emmanuel Forbes, Kyrie Elam. I mean, the list just goes on and on. 
Who was the toughest corner that you faced last year? Uh, the toughest was um, probably Sertain. I didn't play a bunch that game, but um, he was always just locked down on the receiver. And um, but I think the the uh, kid for Mississippi State was also really good. Number thirteen at this were uh, one. Is that Forbes? Yeah, I didn't want to bring up the fact that yeah. Forbes got you twice in that game. I didn't want to go there. Oh, is he thirteen? I think he's thirteen. I don't know. One, I think they're both. 13. They're both really. They're both really good. Yeah, they they both picked me off. I think so. <laughs> yeah, Emerson's on that team as well. They are. They are loaded. Okay. In, yeah. In secondary. Yeah, they're good. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then uh, I'll I'll close with this. I asked this question to fellow Ohio native quarterback Joe Burrow uh, a few years ago after he came to the SEC and he experienced it for the first time. What do you tell Midwesterners about the SEC? thing I say is it's football is like at the top I mean everything revolves around football and I don't think there's anywhere else in in the in the country where you can go and you know there's it's the only thing that people talk about in the fall is is football so yeah take that Ohio State one more jab for the Buckeyes. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Connor, this has been great, man. Really appreciate it. Uh, really appreciate the time. I'm sure I'll see you at uh, SEC Media Days in, in a few weeks here. Best of luck with everything this year, man. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. What's my destiny, Mom? You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. Life is a box of chocolates, Forrest. You never know what you're going to get. Flying is the subject of figuring it out today. I'll say this. California was awesome. We hit San Francisco. We spent a day in Napa. We drove down the coast of Santa Barbara. Spent a night there. Checked out Venice Beach. Then spent a few days out in San Diego with some friends. It was a bucket list trip. And we were absolutely spoiled by our friends that we stayed with. If you haven't been to California like I hadn't before. And if you have the means... I cannot recommend it enough. Awesome time there. And I just was so, so relieved that we were able to finally do this a trip that we had planned back in 2020. Saved a little bit by spending four or five nights with friends as well. So that, that helped. But my goodness, we had the worst travel experience of our lives. Before I get to the flying part of this, and I promise that's, that's part of this, we rented a car because we wanted to be able to take Highway 1 down the coast. We were supposed to drop off the rental car in San Diego at 5 o'clock local time on Friday. We were coming in from Santa Barbara. That's supposed to be like a three and a half hour drive. At 10.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., Lauren looks up directions. And it says that we won't arrive in San Diego until 4.10 p.m. There was a major slowdown that we figured, <laughs> all right, it'll get cleaned up. No big deal. You know, maybe it's act one accident and... You know, the time, estimated time of arrival is going to change. So Lauren keeps looking it up and nothing's changing. So we knew that we were going to have to stop once for gas, that we wanted to just like see Venice Beach for 20 minutes. Didn't need to do, you know, the entire experience down there, but just wanted to be able to see it. The whole time we keep thinking this will change. The time of arrival will change and it just never did. We left Venice Beach and it was 1.30. The directions said about 4.50 was when we would arrive in San Diego. Needless to say, 
California traffic, LA traffic, we did not make it on time. We called the rental car place ahead of time, and I'm not gonna put them on blast just yet. Maybe I'll save that for next week. We let them know, hoping that they would give us some grace, and the woman who answered the phone at the local rental car place said, you know, no big deal, just drop off the car at the airport, which was like 20 minutes away from where we were supposed to drop it off. So we drop it off at around 5.45, and we asked them when we get there, we're, we're, we're good, right? We thought, you know, maybe like we'll, we'll cover a late charge, maybe a hundred bucks. Nope. We find out a couple days ago that they tripled our rate for the entire trip, which added an additional $700 onto the $500 bill because they said that we voided the contract. Oh, brother. Are you serious, dude? Dead serious. Lauren has been on the phone probably four or five separate times. And let's just say they're not having any of it. Maybe this will all be resolved by the, the, the next time that we're, we're talking, but this whole thing just is, well, you shouldn't have done this because in the contract, in the very, very tiny fine print, it says, call corporate Hertz if you're going to be running late, which I would never think to do that. And we followed exactly what Hertz employees told us to do. So, so that, that was and is awful. But the flying part. We were supposed to fly out of San Diego at noon on Sunday. We had scheduled an hour layover in Houston, and then our flight from Houston to Orlando would arrive like 9.30 Eastern time. So easy enough. No, of course not. I am never the guy who puts an airline on blast. I don't do that, and even though my Twitter account is still um, not able to be used. Thanks a lot, Twitter. Should have probably gone to San Francisco and given them a piece of my mind. Decided not to do that. Man, the state of California is just whooping y'all's ass. <laughs> Very, much. Very much. I I just I always usually hate to be that person who complains about an airline. But by the end of this, you'll get why I felt compelled to call out United. Yes, United, you. The flight out of San Diego was delayed for about a half hour, no big deal, whatever. But then we drive around the runway while we're on the plane for roughly two hours without taking off. And maybe one announcement came in as to what in the world is going on and why we're not taking off. There was an issue with air traffic, so they kept rerouting us. Three different times they keep rerouting us, and then they messed up the fuel levels. It was a train wreck. By the time that we left, it was about 3.15. Remember how I said that we had an hour layover in Houston? We weren't making that flight. That wasn't going to happen. There was only one other flight from Houston to Orlando on Sunday, and it was set to take off at 8 p.m. Central Time. Our flight was set to arrive then at 8.15 Central Time. So Lauren and I, sitting in different rows, are thinking we're going to have to spend the night in Houston. Our flight gets in at 8.30 Central Time. And we get a text as soon as we land that we're actually on a flight that's set to leave at 9 p.m. So we're like, boom, we finally caught a break, and we did, and I'm truly grateful for that, and there was thunderstorms in the area, so that's what delayed that eight o'clock flight. So that was great. That beat the hell out of spending the night in Houston and having another full travel day. By the time we touched down in Orlando, and that flight was, was perfectly fine, it was about 12.50 in the morning Eastern time. And we go down, we go down to, to baggage claim. We checked one bag, one very large bag that we just had to get under 50 pounds. It basically had all of our clothes, all of Lauren's makeup, all of Lauren's makeup, and the three nice bottles of wine that we bought when we were in Napa. One of the more deflating feelings on earth 
that any human being can experience is waiting in baggage claim and watching everyone clear out, only to realize that you're the last one there and you don't have your bags. So we've got to go to the help desk, right? We wait 20 minutes in line because at that time, it, you know, 1.30 in the morning, whatever it is, 1.45 in the morning by that time, Jeez. there's only one person working and there's four people ahead of us in line. They tell us by the time we get up there that our bag is still in Houston. The good news is that they can deliver it to us tomorrow, which that's better than what I was thinking of having to drive back down to the airport, which is about an hour and 20 minutes, hour and a half round trip and getting through Orlando traffic did not want to have to do that. We're both kind of just like at that point, that's, you know, that sucks, but whatever. End of story, right? No, certainly not. Certainly not. Monday, nobody shows up. Multiple calls on the phone from Lauren suggested that they would come. Keep in mind, Lauren has no makeup. She's a prof somebody in professional workplace and she's just kind of like working from home and just doesn't have any of her makeup and isn't just going to go replace an entire makeup kit when theoretically we should be getting our bag. Doesn't even have her hairbrush. And your boy, down to last pair of underwear. I'll say that. <laughs> that's, that's a me problem though because I don't know if you do this. I always pack basically all of my underwear because I never want to run out. Never want to There's do that. There's a tweet about that. Though. I'm not going to say on air, but it's like, I, I prepare for a very bad trip <laughs> in terms of my underwear. I, I prepare for lots of things going wrong with my underwear situation. So I definitely relate to that. I just, I, I don't ever want to be in that spot. So Tuesday, Lauren, a saint in all of this, really, calls United multiple times. Finally, she talks to the delivery service worker at 10.30 a.m. on Tuesday morning. He says, I'll be there within two hours. Spoiler alert. Dude wasn't coming within two hours. At 2.30, four hours later, we call him back. And he's like, oh yeah, they took me off that route. Thanks for communicating that to us. We're like, okay, so you're not coming with our bag? Nope. Apparently, we find out that they took the bag to somebody else's house because they put the wrong address tag on the bag. Thank God someone didn't just look in the suitcase and go, hey, there's a good amount of free stuff in here. By that point, Lauren and I are like, well, I guess we're going to have to get new stuff because I don't know. Nobody knows where our bag is. United, we looked into the policy too. United will reimburse $1,500 if it takes more than five days to get the bag back. I did the mental math on that and I'm thinking to myself, there's definitely more than $1,500 worth of stuff in here because it's both of our things. It's not just like mm -hmm. I brought a carry-on or she brought a carry-on. It's our biggest suitcase with all of our stuff in it. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So finally, around nine o'clock Tuesday night, after spending multiple hours on the phone with these people who cannot get a hold of the delivery service, the delivery service calls Lauren and says, we can drop the bag off tonight, but it might be super late. She goes, perfect, that's totally fine. My husband, he's gonna be up anyways. Your boy was locked in for the entire College World Series final. It's been, uh, it's been lots of late nights this week because apparently you can't play a College World Series final game without a rain delay, whatever. Side note, go to SaturdayDownSouth.com. We've got a ton of great baseball coverage. Do that right now. I was up riding until 1 a.m. I opened the door thinking maybe there's a chance that I, I didn't hear somebody come and drop off a bag or something like that. Nope, still nothing. I went to bed pretty pissed off. But then at 4 a.m., Lauren wakes up, and what's waiting on our porch? Our bag. Finally. No idea how it got there, when it got there, 
what the whole deal was. Maybe multiple people lied to us. But it, finally, after almost you know two, two full days of not having that stuff and wondering if we were going to have to buy all new stuff, we got some sort of resolution. But yes, that is my worst travel experience. Will, you know that I'm not a violent guy. That's the closest I've been to wanting to punch someone in a long time. And I don't even know who I wanted to punch, which is probably the most frustrating thing. Fight an airplane. You're just punching the tail of an airplane outside. Oh, goodness gracious. Fighting the weather. <laughs> I, I just wanted to I, I just wanted to cry. I, I got to that point and I'm like, you know what? This is this is just not worked out. This is everything that can go wrong, Will, with the exception of of being able to to not have to spend a night in Houston. And with all due respect to Houston, I just wasn't necessarily in that mode. But there are a lot of great responses that we got from Hold the on, Facebook. Let me say this real quick. This, oh, is, yes, this could away. potentially be a whole other figuring it out thing. Like, so when you're in a situation like that, right, and you know things are going wrong and there's gonna have to be some discussion between you and some corporation, you know, you guys have been in a relationship long enough. Who's the default responder there? Like. That's, so that's been a, a point of contention this week in our household is that <laughs> Lauren is that person mm -hmm. and she hates being that person. Mm -hmm. She wishes that I were that person and it's not that I wasn't willing to call up people I, and I, you know, I did call a, a couple of times as well and like I said, she is a saint for doing this but she wants to be in control. She feels like she has the best sort of handle on this situation. What about with you guys? Yeah, so, and see, the thing is, like, that's the advantage to have Lauren being in PR, because it's mm. like, I'm sure she has dealt with all of the plays that they're going to run on y'all. Yeah. So I can see, like, why you think that way. For for us, it's almost like a good cop, bad cop situation, because Brittany's a paralegal. She deals with legal questions all day long. If, if it gets to the point where it's me, you're getting a whole bunch of angry Cajun. You're getting a whole bunch of, hey, man, you've been talking to my girlfriend for three weeks, nothing's come of this, da 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 Like, they're just getting full, like, coach-o, like... They don't want to talk to me yep. <laughs> because Brittany is elite and just because she just, you know, because of her job, just deals with angry customers all day. You can't really do that. I'm just not skilled in that way. So if it gets to the point of me talking to someone, it's tough. <laughs> like once we're in that situation, like that far out. That's the, maybe one of the, the worst parts about this is it's not just that you want your stuff back, which is your stuff and you paid for a bag and you would think that an airplane wouldn't lose it and I felt the entire time like we were in Meet the Parents and that was just going to be the situation that was going to come up and they were going to have my wrong bag. But it's the time spent talking on the phone and having mm -hmm. to re-explain the entire situation over and over. So for the last three days essentially that's what Lauren has been doing and spending far too much time that any human being should have to spend on that with the rental car company and United. I can't say that I'm going to be a United customer anytime soon. I'll just throw that out there into the world. But there's always probably going to be that flight that's $150 cheaper to fly United than it is anywhere else. And then I'm going to say, well, I guess my United ban is over. So, But everybody has their line. I have a spirit line that I'm not willing to, to cross. And we'll get into some, some spirit stuff with this. But we've got a lot of great responses. A lot of great responses. Drew Page says, worst experience on a flight. And these are flight horror stories. Worst experience on a flight was me and my wife's then girlfriend trip out to Las Vegas. I have severe anxiety, so even just hanging out doing nothing, I can have a panic attack. About halfway through our flight, we hit a little bit of turbulence and I start just freaking out. I can't breathe, I'm basically crying and going into full-blown panic mode. A woman in front of me sees me freaking out and instead of offering, offering to help, 
or anything, she starts laughing at me. And if Oof. I hadn't been panicking and had a death grip on my wife's hand, she would have started a fight on that airplane while we were in turbulence because I pretty much had to hold her back while I thought I was dying. First of all, your wife's the real MVP in all mm-hmm. this, Drew Page. That's, that's a keeper right there. To laugh at someone in that spot, come on. I get it. You can have your own comments to yourself. Don't be the person who laughs. People deal with anxiety in different sort of ways. Although, as, in, as a potential onlooker, seeing a mid-flight fight would have been wildly entertaining. If you're talking about something to take your mind off the turbulence, <laughs> a mid-flight flight. A mid-flight fight. That's a mouthful. Oh, that would have been that would have been excellent. But Drew, I think that also would have gotten you on a no-fly list. So purely for entertainment standpoint. Will, you've never been in a, a mid-flight fight, have you? No, no. And like I'm either the best or the worst person to be with, you know, if you're in that situation where you have flight anxiety. Because my dad was a pilot for like 30 years. Mm. I'm the guy who's like king of like, well, you know, you're 20 times more likely to die on the way to the airport than in the plane. And like, well, if you, you know, this is like 10 times more safe than a roller coaster. And like, I'll always be whipping up those statistics. Brittany's the same way. She hadn't flown a lot growing up. And I'm very like, I had like, whenever we flew to Europe, I had just a list of stuff printed out where I was like, hey, if you start to get anxious, like, look at this. These are provable facts. Like, I understand that you're going through this, but like, here's because obviously the airline industry is super duper safe because every time you hear a plane crash, it's a national story. So yeah, I, uh, I, flight anxiety sounds horrible to me. That, that, that sounds like I, Bless up on that one because that that's tough. I couldn't be if I had flight anxiety to that level. I couldn't be the I'm gonna I'm gonna go to just getting smashed beforehand. I couldn't <laughs> be that person. I could never be that person because I, I think I would freak out even more. And I've heard a couple right. of stories about that. So I don't know, but you, you found a way to get through it. So credit to you, Jeff Jensen. Our horror story is from back in 2019. We were coming home from our family trip to California and had to be at the San Francisco airport at 4.30 a.m. to catch the first leg of our flight back to Florida. This is very relatable. Everything was fine until we landed in Dallas. Wow, even connected in Texas. To catch our connection and a terrible storm rolled through, knocked out power to Love Field and delayed every flight. My wife and I did everything to keep our two-year-old engaged until they sorted things out. Southwest, thank God, didn't cancel our flight. But when we boarded, they told us that there was a ground stop in Tampa due to lightning. So we were delayed another three hours. We finally walked in our front door at 11.30 p.m. Eastern to say we were exhausted is an understatement. I don't have kids, but I imagine that everything feels that much more stressful when you have a two-year-old involved. That two-year-old, to get through that, they gain some life experience down the road. They're not going to remember that, but maybe subconsciously, when they're four and they're in that spot where the flight gets delayed an hour, they're not going to be that kid crying. And they got tougher that day. Love the Big Ten football lesson. <laughs> Listen, you, you had to play through a nine to seven game in thirty-five degree weather, and it was windy at Camp Randall, but you did it, and you're better for it. Listen, that kid now he grew up to be Pat Fitzgerald. Okay. <laughs> Matthew Sadro says, "My dad flew Spirit to and from Houston every week for work for about two years, and he swears it's not that bad. It is that bad." But I'll never stoop that low. I must be in the vast majority, though. Um, vast minority, rather. 
uh, because I love airports and flying. I think airports are a cool place to visit in any given city and it gives you a little taste of what that place's culture is like and of my favorite, one of my favorite snacks is the Biscoff cookies you get on planes. So there's something for me in every traveling experience no matter what. That's glass half full when it comes to flying. If you're the person who gets to the airport and you're fired up and you're looking around and you want to sample the local flavor of the area, which isn't always the best indicator, but sometimes it is, you're more optimistic than I am. And I consider myself a pretty optimistic person. I'm not optimistic about spirit. I just can't do it. At this point in my life, th there's never going to be a spot that I, I think is worth it for spirit. Will, have you crossed that line yet? Or are you still on the side of, well, if it's cheap enough, we'll make it work. Oh yeah, no. So first off, flying spirit for work is dirty. I would be furious if hey, my work was comping spirit flights. That's a good but, point. <laughs> like that's because I was about to say spirit exists at the apex of broken bougie, right? Which is mm. like I don't have money, but I want to do something fancy. And I've flown spirit numerous numerous times. I flew to Puerto Rico. I flew, you know what I'm saying? And that's what happens when you book a trip that you can't totally afford when you're about 20 or 21. True. And you just gotta figure it out because it's either you don't go on the trip or you do it in the most just bougie way possible now now living in atlanta you know what i'm saying we're next to the delta hub so that problem kind of solved itself because if i can't find a delta flight to get where i'm going i'm just not gonna go That's because true. if you can't fly from atlanta to somewhere delta probably not somewhere i want to be honestly <laughs> i mean delta over united all day too the oh yeah flight experience so much better and i've spent a lot of time in that atlanta airport and i'll take that every single day of the week we'll run through a couple of these quick here. Uh, Chris, Christopher Zahor says, I was visiting my girlfriend in Georgia before we lived together. Augusta has a super small airport and she convinced me that I only had to be there about 20 minutes before the flight boarded. What? Before Oof. I even got to security, I could hear them announcing my name over the intercom, pronounced <laughs> incorrectly, of course. Luckily, it was a really small airport and there was no line for security. That's kind of on you. If you believe that you only had to get to a flight 20 minutes before it boarded, post 9-11 era, that just doesn't happen. You just can't, you can't get away with that. You're playing with fire if, if you were of the impression that you were going to be able to get in and out that quickly. But you made your flight, so I guess no harm, no foul. Michael Dark, when my middle son, oh, this is so bad. When my middle son was two, the two of us flew from Atlanta to Detroit to visit my mom in the hospital. The journey there was perfect. He slept and played games on my phone. The way back was hell. The way back's always worse. Tornadoes made our 45 minute layover in Charlotte six hours. When we got on the flight, my son was having a terrible fit and eventually had blowout diarrhea all over me. Since our bags were checked, I had to sit and poop for a total of 90 minutes before I could change. To top it off, the woman sitting next to me were, the women next to me were screaming in my ear every time we had turbulence. That was the last time I flew, 2017. Hopefully my flight to Detroit next month is better. Michael, if I experienced blowout diarrhea on a plane, I wouldn't be getting back on it anytime soon. I don't care if it came from my own flesh and blood. That's just where, that's where I draw the line. Life's too short to deal with something like that, but at least you figured out why your son was throwing a fit. I think we all would throw a fit in that situation. Aaron that Michael. Is, uh, that's like a personal episode of the Twilight Zone for me. That sounds terrible. You're a strong person for keeping your cool, and hey, you made it. 
and hopefully you got cleaned up in due time. Aaron Michael, I had a window seat and this lady placed her baby in the middle seat. The, speaking of poop, the baby proceeds to take a, a gigantic dump before we even push back <laughs> from the gate. And I'm left holding my shirt up my, to my nose for the entirety of the flight to reduce the smell. She then proceeds to change the baby's diaper in the seat when we land and trapping me in my seat until we are literally the last few on the plane. Absolutely horrible. Man. <laughs> that would be another he, one. I'd have a very tough time getting back on a plane. No, I mean, that would be a conversation. That. You see what I'm saying? I would be like, ma'am, can we discuss this? Like can, we, like, can we at least, like, have a discussion to where you explain to me why you're putting me in this situation? I'm just curious. <laughs> we, we know we know there's poop in that diaper. Let's, right. Let's like, address you're, this. You're going to have to change this baby. Now, I understand it's harder to do so in the air. However, if you're going to do it as soon as we land, like, what's the game plan? That's all I'm asking. You know what I'm saying? Like, do I need to just, should I start a new game of civilization on my phone? Like, how long are we going to be here? Oh, goodness. Um, Jonathan Mason says, went to Vegas at the beginning of May with my wife. Traffic and other circumstances not worth revisiting wound up with us missing our 5 p.m. flight out of Atlanta. Guaranteed tickets on the next flight at 7.45 p.m. were $1,200. So we said, put us on the standby list instead. Miraculously, we ended up getting on the next flight. And although we couldn't sit next to each other, we somehow got upgraded to Delta Comfort seating. And I found my seat on an exit row. My 6'6 self, sick brag, was pretty ecstatic about that. And the four-hour flight to Vegas with free drinks the entire way while watching Jerry Maguire helped turn a far too stressful situation into one we'll always remember. That never happens. That just never happens. That, that, that is one of those that you, you file away and say, I will never, much like 2019 LSU football for you, Will, <laughs> let be the standard because that ain't it. It's just not. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I don't even disagree. You didn't have to say it. <laughs> All right. Um, there are a couple good ones here. Andrew Diacomo, um, he had a good story in which he is, you know, told he's going to have a delay. And basically, long story short, he's sitting down to have a burger and a beer. And then they tell him, hey, your flight's leaving right now. Chugs his beer, gets his burger in a to-go box. Doesn't exactly work out. The burger's cold, but at least you could chug beer. So that's good. Um, good for you, Andrew. Nick Ruark says, um, when I was a baby, uh, my parents took me on a plane and apparently I cried and threw a fit the whole time. So I was probably the reason other passengers had a bad time. Four years ago, my brother was attending the summer seminar at the Naval Academy in Annapolis. Thank you for your service. And on the flight back, I was going uh, I was going to be flying by myself, which was my first time doing so. So I got a little nervous, decided to have a few beers in the bar before my flight. And then while on the flight, I told the flight attendant that if she ever saw my drink was empty to go ahead and get me another one. Needless to say, I landed back in St. Louis, very toasted and was greeted by my wife who was not super happy to see how trashed I was. My advice is find a better way to cope with your nerves than booze. Though for me, it worked and I got through the fight, the flight just fine. I don't know, man. I'm not, again, like I said, I'm not a booze before traveling guy. If you are, more power to you. But getting sloshed is very easy to do when you're at those altitudes. I remember getting buzzed off one beer coming back from Europe. And for two beer, Connor, come on. I mean, I'm not that bad. It's a little bit better than that. We don't get to that level. Um, we'll close out with, 
Emery had a good one as well, although it's more of a sick brag that, um, well, not a, not a sick brag. He gets searched every single time he travels, he says. <laughs> he and his wife, Kelsey, which that I just casually look like a terrorist. <laughs> That's my I don't know. Emery just gives off those vibes. Apparently, with all the tattoos now, he's, he's really giving off those vibes big time. But he's lucky because he gets to not have to deal with airport parking. He parks five minutes away at his dad's diesel shop. So he never has to deal with that short Uber away. We'll end on this one. Um, Eric Beasley says, I was flying to Vegas from Shreveport for work and I had a layover in Houston. I was using the United app on my phone for my boarding passes. This is very relatable. As I was boarding the plane, I scanned my boarding pass and the person supervising this told me I was good and I went to my seat. We landed in Houston and pulled up the app to see which gate I needed to go to for my flight to Vegas and I couldn't fly, find any of my flight info. I just thought there was a glitch or something and I found a United employee and asked if they could print my boarding passes. They told me I was a no-show in Shreveport and that my entire trip had been canceled. I stared at her for a moment and said, well, obviously I wasn't a no-show because here I am. She told me to go to the gate and they would be able to help me. So I got there and there was no seats available, but they got me on the next flight five hours later. Oh, that's a long layover. I was also told that my return flight had been rebooked, so I should be good to go. Well, on my way back, I get to the airport in Vegas to find out it hadn't been taken care of. Thankfully, there was a lady there was able to, to get it all fixed on the flight with my coworkers. Those people who work in the troubleshooting department at airports, my hat's off to them. Right, They yeah. do the Lord's work with some of that rerouting and stuff like that. One time, a, a few, I think it was going to my brother's, yeah, I was going to my brother's bachelor party a couple of months ago, and I, I'm supposed to have a, a layover in Atlanta, and I'm thinking my flight's going to be, I'm, I'm going to be on a flight like four hours in advance because I missed a connection flight. It seems to be a theme with me lately. And I go up to the guy at the desk, and he tells me, oh, no, 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 no. We're not having you do that. We're going to get you on a flight in an hour here. I'm like, why are you so much more competent than the person who was in charge of this app and rerouting my, my flight? Whatever. People who work there, the real MVPs. I've had enough time at airports lately. I, I don't need to see another airport anytime soon. Sorry, I, I do not share the same exact perspective of Matthew Sadro. I just don't. Not at that level. I'll say this. We have enough data at this point. It seems like return flights are kind of a grift. It seems like now from now on, I'm going to really double check my return yeah. flights because it seems like they're planning on like 25% of the people just not coming back for whatever reason. And like all these return flights are just like, oh yeah, man, you'll probably get here at some point. It's always <laughs> the return flights. Always. Every single time. Way more problems coming back than getting to a specific destination. Thank you to everybody who submitted responses in the Facebook group. If you have not joined the Saturday Night on South podcast Facebook group, you should definitely do so. I'm going to do a very SEC-heavy projection pod next week. Barring something changing, I want to do best-case scenarios for every SEC team. I'll also probably be doing a little bit of reacting to this NIL stuff and what's already out there, and maybe this week we're going to know a lot more about just how this is all going to look and how this is going to go. Leave us a five-star review, like, subscribe, go subscribe to our newsletter, go subscribe to College Football Uncensored wherever you get your podcast. And if I haven't already said this, which I'm now just realizing I haven't, enjoy 4th of July. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.